out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the band, all the way from Manchester, the King of the Slums, because I spoke to their main man, Charlie Kia, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. And also, just to say, they have a new album coming out in September. Um, I do believe it's titled... I might got this completely wrong. Encrypted Contemporary Narratives. I hope that's right and not just some file that they're called. But anyway, look, there's a new album. They've also just released two albums in the last couple of years as well. They're very prolific at the moment. Anyway, this is the interview. And after some casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that were the formative, the early formative years. And this was Charlie's response. Charlie, it is going to be all over or up to you. Take it away. Uh, well, uh, early stuff, uh, family's all uh, Irish, so it's all um, diddly 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 stuff, you know, <laughs> like uh, traditional Irish music initially, and then sort of like rebelled at that. A lot of my mates were getting into punk, but I, I didn't embrace it, you know, at the time, you know, when punk was happening. I was always about two years behind, and then I thought, yeah, it's brilliant. So I was like, that's old school now. That is. Yes. <laughs> I've always I've always been a couple of years behind uh, what you know everyone was listening to. But, uh, if after believe it or not, I mean I used to like have a big mix from Irish traditional music through to well Black Sabbath and stuff like that. The, the heavier the the better. Anything weird like electronic stuff like Tangerine Dream and stuff like that. Yeah, and even, you know even even Floyd. You know. Well, it's interesting. So I, yeah, I was going to say because my brother, who was seven years older than me, his formative kind of moment was prog rock, and he had you know the Yes Genesis, Tangerine Dream, Ricochet, Pink, bit of early Pink yeah, Floyd, yeah. and then and then he also bizarrely had the. Black Sabbath album and a Deep Purple album and when I was very young I'd sneak into his room and play them religiously and think wow Sabbath bloody Sabbath that's that's not what I'm hearing on top yeah, of the pops belting out. it's still a belting album actually that one yes. one, one of the best I well it was yeah, it was yeah. kind of the way I've it built it oh god Sabbath bloody Sabbath I mean the way it sort of he sings that last verse is quite kind of like, oh, that's something else. And then, you know, and they recorded yeah. all that at that famous studio in Rock, was it Rockwell, which is one that became famous. Yeah, in... that rings the bell, yeah. Because well, those days you used to get proper sleeves and you'd like read, you know, all of where was it recorded and it had like a mystic. Well, that's so much to read, whereas now it's all streaming and there's really no info and people's attention spans about 15 milliseconds. 15, yes, that's true. There's people, people do seem to like try to create music to engage them in 15 milliseconds and, you know, just pop nonsense. So was your, with your... I'm not saying... Yeah, I was going to say, was it was it the case that with your Irish kind of background, you know, was it people like Planksty and the Dubliners and Christy Moore and and that kind of... Dubliners, Christy Moore, especially Dubliners, um, the, some of the live albums, and because you know my family like worked when they came over to England, they worked on the roads and stuff. So where they did songs like Hot Ashfell or something like that, you know, it meant a great deal, you know, to my dad and his brothers and everything. So you know, uh, it was like religious stuff. <laughs> you know, you couldn't you couldn't say anything against it, but it was good anyway. You know, it was really good, very well written, dead tight. You know, lyrics were really tight on them. So yes, well, it was interesting and because it's always remained because because I grew up on the east side of the country, you know, East Anglia, where we had a lot of these Second World yeah. War Second World War aerodromes, and there was a lot of when I was growing up, you know, in that period. I can vaguely remember there was a lot of Irish and they actually a lot of Irish people came over in the Second World War who were sort of constructing and building the airdromes they that was kind of their uh, yeah yeah their story yeah, yeah. you know That's so it. yeah and then obviously they stayed and there was a lot of Polish people as well in the sort of area as well which was yeah. quite interesting so do you do you have a slightly similar background to dear old Morrissey whose kind of parents were of uh, yeah, same school, everything. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> the same school. He's a few years older than me, but he's um, he was 
I must have been at school when he was at school, but when you're like in second year and they're in fourth year or whatever, you just don't mingle, do you? You know, they're, they're the big boys. They so are the big boys. Apparently, yeah, apparently, well, yeah, we went to the same school, so believe it or not. Right. And yeah, well, I always lived quite close to them. I never actually knew him, but uh, I met some of his band, you know, when they were getting big. Yes. Uh, I think uh, the drum the drummer was a friend of a friend and whatever Mike Joyce and I think came out of our flat a few times. Yeah, I wish they'd asked him for gigs, but I never did. I was too shy. But you're you're star now, mate. You know you're in the Smiths and whatever. But um, yeah, so yeah, quite quite similar in that that respect. Yeah. Yes. Well, I sort I, of I, I wasn't into. He was into the New York Dolls, wasn't he? He was very into That's them. all I remember. Yes, and that whole CBGBs and David Johansson and then a guy called James Maker what? and people like that. So, um, yes, it was all. It was kind of very much that New York scene, as well as other things yeah, well, as well. I, I liked it, again, probably about three years after everyone else liked it. And so I was only about a few years old, but I actually realised Iggy and the Stooges were absolutely awesome, you know, <laughs> one of the best things ever. You know, catching up with them on YouTube. I never was into it at the time, but yeah, brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. So, when did you discover your kind of voice and and start playing an instrument? Um. Poor oh God. Um. I moved to London when I was late teens, early twenties to start a band with a mate who moved there. And that didn't really work out. And then I came back full of, right, I want to start my own band. So that would have been like early 82, 83, moved back to Manchester, got a flat in Humor, I don't know if you know it, but anybody could get a flat. And along with about 10,000, well, 10,000 other aspiring musicians started up yes. in the flat, creating music, really. So and that, that was it, yeah. Yes. And that uh, went on for about 10 years until we... Took a break, so we took about a fifteen year, sixteen year break, and came back. Yeah, about three years ago. I know yeah. it's it's a good time to come back. Well, kind of, it's a strange period. But look, because in the early, there was like seventy nine. You know, Thatcher got into power, so the Conservatives suddenly sort of started storming, yeah, yeah. storming, norming, and forming. And then there was like the you know yeah. there was. I remember being at that period and age. And also because I was left of centre politically. So it was like being unemployed wasn't a really big thing. In fact, it felt like, you know, something that you should do or, or you know, I don't know. It was it, There was no stigma. It was almost like that was a cool thing to do. And there was like the Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance schemes. Did you... Well, I was, yeah, everyone I knew, that was it. No one was working. It was a rarity, you know, so... That's what you did. And we, I think we started off an Enterprise Allowance. You got 40 quid a week or something, I can't remember. Yes. There's loads of bands on it. I'm sure the four were on it, whether at some point, or I think <laughs> legally or not. But, uh, well, I think you had to claim, yeah. for one of those, you had to have a £1,000 in your bank account or prove that you had a £1,000. I think people would pass this £1,000. Well, I never had, we never had that, so I don't know. What, I don't know. Never like but you definitely got the housing benefit, your council tax, and 30 or 40 quid. So that was quite handy because I talked because I, yeah. I spoke to quite a few Manchester bands and there was one big flame and I think they were also in that area where you mentioned whom because I think uh, yeah v- vaguely rings a bell that name yeah big flame Greg from big flame but he said they came back one night from a gig and the flat was completely empty because someone had just stolen everything there was nothing oh yeah that, that happened to us yeah there was just and, not uh, anything left. There was nothing you could do then. <laughs> but, you know, all your stuff... You didn't have much stuff anyway, but you know, there, was, there was a lot of smackheads around there at that time, and that's, that's what they used to do. Yes. You know? I'm surprised. Yeah, it's, what, what can you do? You can kick and scream, but you're not going to see it again, so you just have to try and build again. Yes. But, yeah, it, it's crap, but... That's the way it was, yeah. Yeah. How it was. Because from that, you know, because obviously you had a bit more of an, you know, like you had a folk kind of tradition. But then other side of it, you know, the, you had that punk period and then post-punk. And then kind of, you know, bands like Gang of Four and that magazine and, and all that kind of malarkey. And then you had, you know, the kind of indie scene started. And obviously kind of 
indie was kind of that, that world that was the Smiths, and that was kind of 83 to 87. There was a real jingly-jangly vibe in the air, you know, because you had, you'd had Orange Juice, yeah. and then you had June Brides, and then you had the Go-Betweens and the Triffids and the Chills, and obviously the Smiths. Did you, we, you know, and being from Manchester, and I know recently Cherry Red Records brought out that 7-CD box set, was Manchester kind of just a buzz of exciting creativity at that stage? Because it does feel like that from someone coming from Norwich. You just see a bit of lots of bands, but uh, we we just hated all that jingly jangly stuff. We were either in the hardcore punk then, or somewhat quite extreme like Motorhead or something. So as far removed from that as possible, but everyone seemed to have a Morrissey haircut, you know. <laughs> that's all I remember. <laughs> And uh, I'm so glad I didn't go down that route. So, <laughs> um, it's, um, I, I don't know, when you're doing your own band, you, you, you're up your own ass, really, and you're just sort of totally focused on that. And I was determined not to be, you know, influ- we never really sounded like anybody. I was determined to maintain not sounding like anybody at all. So the way to do that was you know, not listen to anything. Although we did, obviously, listen to Peely and stuff like that. Yes. But um, I wouldn't I would say we were influenced by anyone around there. But, I, yeah, I'd say the vibe, yeah, especially around Hume, around that, it was quite, you know, bohemian and arty and, yeah, yes. quite free in that, artistically, yeah. Because the one thing about the but, band, and I was, I've listened, been listening to the new album that's coming out, and I have to say, the track that I really loved, and which was quite hypnotising, was the last one, Sugar Rush. Which was, oh, Sugar Rush, yeah. Yes, and then sort of obviously listening to the early, you know, your stuff again, and it was kind of interesting because it's kind of very punctuated with the electric violin. So when did you decide, yeah. this is it, I'm going to... Because Laura, because 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 um, being into John Peel and and you know the eighties, you you're into all that. All, you want to be alternative, don't you? You're young, you feel like you should be watching Betty Blue, French films, you know, Diva, yeah. a, a Razorhead, all those kind of things in that kind of angsty sort of way that we did. I mean, when did when did you sort of settle with that kind of sound? Because it made it very different to all the jingly jangly bands that I just mentioned earlier. Um. Yeah, well, b- believe it or not, there's, it sounds nothing like it, but um, somebody left a load of records, you know, when people sell vinyl, yes. they still had vinyl, they left some uh, Roxy Music records there, and I think it, I was listening to their second album, and it was just so, wow, this is so weird, and they were quite big there, you know, quite poppy, but I listened to a few more albums, and there's one track called Out of the Blue, and at the end of it, there's this uh, electric violin solo, but it's dead smooth. And uh, I've always liked that sound, but unfortunately, we've never had that sound. As soon as, you know, got someone played a violin, I said, well, let's mess about with the sound. And once we realised it could distort it, I thought, that's it, light bulb moment. <laughs> Every song has got a sound like that, with screeching and distorted violin going on at some point in it. And it, every song has up until now. <laughs> So it's just like stuck. I'd be fear- fearful to move away from it. Yes. Apart from using the ele- the uh, viola on Art oh, God Dogs, the album before this one, we used to, that was all viola as opposed to violin. So, but yeah, people wouldn't really know the difference. But um, but we went back to the violin because well, it's it's like that song you want to like Sugar Rush. Yes. Uh, that there's a big violin solo at the end of that, and uh, that did take a hell of a long time to write. So writing stuff for the violin, because it's dead easy to be nice and twee and do something that people have heard. So it's it's difficult to keep with that with the sound we're trying to get out. We have to try and manipulate the sound and get the riffs right and everything. It's it's it can be a drawn out process. Yes, but, uh, I try to give Clarissa. Um, She's a violinist. Um, well, I gave her a two-minute solo. <laughs> I said, right, you've got two minutes to fill. <laughs> so, see, see, see what you come up with. Two minutes? Are you mad? So, so, yeah, two minutes. It'll be all right. So, yeah, it worked out okay. Yeah. Well, it's got a drama to it. There's a tension, isn't there? There's something kind of like... Because it was a bit like listening to some of Jimi Hendrix stuff. Though there was a lot of feedback and, and kind of amplification, yeah. there's an sonic quality to it. There's also something that is kind of, it kind of moves you as well on a, on another level, and that that kind of violin 
on one level can be quite hypnotised and when you realise it's kind of getting slowly into your DNA, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's solely ingrained in mine. I couldn't, I can't listen to any of our songs without thinking of the violin parts for it. So, yes. You know, anything, if we're writing anything new, so, so sort of like always there in my head to come up with a guitar riff. It's like, yeah, I can hear the violin. Yeah, I can hear the violin. Yes. So, because cause, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, cause I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead because I love Motorhead so much. And oh, um, the one thing... Eddie, my mum. They're all dead now. Can you believe that? Every one of them. I know, I know. That... The, the original lineup, anyway. Yeah, and quite a few of the, sure. and quite a few of the other ones who, who had sort of been guitarists in between. Yeah. But yes... Well, that's my, my favourite album of all time is the live album, No Sleep Till Amersmith. Yes. That's true. I've just been absolutely mind blowing, relentless brilliance. I still think it is. Yeah. Really still blows your head off still now. Yeah, you know? I know. And that went to number one. I was so pleased. Well, they. they <laughs> I was so pleased. Well, it's interesting because they took quite a long time to get anywhere. I think they got to the point where they, they, were, they were going nowhere fast and they thought, look, we're just going to do this one recording that. You know, make a you know live recording of it. I think it was at the Marquee, and then I think a record label picked it up because to create a sound which is quite unique, which they did, doesn't come easily. Otherwise, you're just going to sound like a hundred other or thousand other heavy metal bands, pub bands, aren't you? But you, nothing sounds like yeah. Motorhead. But you can't just go from nothing to Motorhead. You know, there is a progression to get that kind of that to to get everyone to gel. Yeah. And you did you take a while for the your band to get that point where you thought, oh, this sounds this does sound something special now. It, well, it develops all the time. I mean, like, the stuff that no one's heard yet. I mean, they've gone, like, I don't think people would expect. The next 12 songs we've written, like, some of it's acoustic and with, like, Spanish beats and stuff. Because so, uh, I really like flamenco guitar, you see, on top of violin, but yeah, I've never used it. But we've written about three or four songs with, like flamenco guitar in on it. So it sounds very, very different. This next, not the new album coming out, but the one if we get around to finishing it, that one. So it's always developing. It's not like set in stone, right? We found the formula. This is it. Just keep repeating that and tweaking that. It it moves on all the time, all the time. Yes. And does I think it does. I mean in mine in other people's ears, but I I think it does, yeah. And songwriting, did you feel quite self conscious when you started writing and then singing as well? Uh writing the words well, I never thought I'd be singing them, you see. So when I first started writing words for you know, get a singer and do this, but I could never get one, so unfortunately I had to start <laughs> doing the vocals, so <laughs> Um, but songwriting, I, I do it as two separate things. I mainly write the music first and start getting a vibe off that, and then just not listen to music, and then just go just go, go on with myself for a few for about four or five pages, you know, scribbling words and stuff down, and eventually, you know, a, what I think of a coherent song. A lot of people wouldn't agree, but there's some coherency in it in my head. Is like formed and then fit that into the words. Um, yes. Well, I don't know. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose because when when often people start doing something like songwriting or, or writing, they're slightly mimic, mimicking somebody else to sort of like almost slipstream before they kind of you know take the stabilizers off. And I just wondered if there was anybody in particular you were. Oh right, right. You were. Uh, I mean. Uh, I mean, I also say, like, oh, God, that's a clever line, or that's a line, and then I wouldn't listen to them because so I might hear some about the fall, or even Morrissey, if I'm like, come out a really good line, you know, the Smith or something. Yes. I said, right, I'm not listening again because you become too influenced by it. But um, I suppose that I, I, I kind of like weird songs, like, you know, Tom Waits and stuff. Yes. I like his, uh, it's, it's not his Blood on the Tracks thing. It's like, um, what's it called? Blood Money, it's an album called Blood Money. It's all really strange and very strange subject matter. And it's just really, really interesting. You never know what he's going to say there. Yeah, so, because David, because uh, I was going to say, David Bowie used this kind of that whole, you know, William Burroughs yeah, kind of yeah. cut up. And he, he had really amazing imagery. 
and then put them on a, in a song. Somehow they fitted. and But they came so kind of... Um, I suppose they've become so kind of iconic, uh, you know. They've, you know, like we move like tigers on Vaseline is kind of one of those lines. You think, actually, I have no idea what that really is. I've never seen a tiger on Vaseline, yeah. but you know. But again, when he was doing that cut up, so I just wondered if you were similar. And, and I suppose Motorhead, in a way, you know, Lemmy, you know, wrote a lot of sort of things that you know you you took out certain lines. And I just wondered if if you would sometimes piece together things and go, oh, yes, actually, that line goes better with this. You know, it doesn't matter if there's not a story. It's just... But it's kind of the vibe of it that matters. I, I do try and have, a, you know, like a flow in the words, like a story. I do like stories in songs. Um, I mean, some of them are a bit more fragmented and there's no linear narrative or whatever, but there is always a narrative in my head. It's like a beginning, middle, end to to them. Um but no, I don't experiment like just having lots of random bits of paper somewhere and just putting them together and saying it doesn't make sense, but it sounds and looks good. Yes. Maybe I should do that. Maybe. Could be the next album or the one after that. Maybe I'll have a go, yeah. Yes. Because one of the big things that, that we didn't realise at the time, but we do now, is that there were the gatekeepers, weren't there, in that kind of world that was the 80s indie scene. And, you know, we had, like, the music papers that had huge circulations, like the NME, yeah. Melody Makers, Sounds, Record Mirror. And then we had dear old John Peel. And also the other thing that kind of cut on top of that was that, you know, every town and city would have their alternative nights, you know, like every town. Yeah. So, you know, there were gigs all over the place. And and because of the John Peel show, especially, and possibly, you know, Kid Jensen and Janice Long, you know, if someone got played on, on, a, on a John Peel show and they got a session, then, you know, someone promoter on a, a young person on a, on a Monday or Tuesday in, in Norwich or, you know, like, the, I don't know, Leicester, Leeds, you know, York, you know, they would sort of book the band for six weeks later and off you go on your, your merry. That's how it worked. That's how we got, you know, gigs and everything. But uh, I, I think it was better then, you know, when we did have established music papers that people used to go out and buy because now you don't really know what's going on <laughs> because there's so much going on and it's so like insular and it's it, it, I, 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 it was great because if you, you they'd review it and you, you'd have your management or whatever have relationships with the press or whatever and that they, they could really make a break here and and get get you going whereas now you have well, young bands ain't got that support anymore. That you know, journalism happening anymore. Yeah, people don't go out and buy buy those papers. Yes, and there's no John Peel. No... So it's very very different now how you expose what what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. Other than, and it's basically free. You know, we we don't make any money basically out of it unless we sell millions, and it's all on Spotify for free and you can't gig now at the moment anyway so you can't make any money that way it's it's a different world to when we started very different yes absolutely uh, but and I I would wish there was like a weekly newspaper uh, maybe not well you know like the enemy or Melody Maker that well, I know they're probably still... Well, I know the enemy's still online, but I've never even researched it or even looked at it. No, I haven't either. I do, I do. I just thought it was better those days. It was more defined about what the route you went to get somewhere. And if you never got there, oh, forget it, you're not going to make it. Yes. But, you know, gradually getting a few little reviews in the big papers and stuff like that was hugely beneficial. And I like to say everyone would pick up on it promoters and stuff we started getting gigs and stuff well absolutely and, uh, yeah. Yeah, and the circulation was enormous you know it was like some yeah, like yeah, hundred thousand yeah. so even a, a little kind of mention would, would be enough for you know those i mean basically you would you know get with a you know a few plays on john Peel on the session say you know you'd probably be able to get 150 people who would want to go to that indie night on a monday tuesday or wednesday in that yeah, town yeah, you know and just go oh that's great and you'd probably have three bands for three pound and you sell a few t-shirts bob your uncle or somebody's your uncle who knows but you, how did you can you remember your john pills session because you did that in 88 at made of l and obviously you know this is kind of like it's not quite being blessed by the pope but it's kind of you know it's kind of you feel because the one thing is kind of feeling like you're making some sort of progress otherwise it can be a bit 
Yeah, I do. I do. Unfortunately, he didn't meet the great man, but he did. Um, he did set up. A, we had a gig probably a year later, and he was the uh, DJ there. And at the end of the night, he was up there. I just didn't have the balls to go up and say hello to him. I really wanted to have a chat to him. Yes. But yeah, the, the session was really important to, to get one. Just gets you gets you really well known and they keep repeating it and you get a few quid for it, it all helps. Yes. But yeah, and made the veil it was quite a famous studio and but you don't get much well we didn't. I suspect the folder with twenty twenty odd sessions but just went in and played live and then that's it for you guys. You so you had no input on Yes. You know, the levels of stuff. So cause it was like, oh come on, you know, but that was it. So you have to leave it to them to mix it, you know, the level, because nobody understood where the violin should be, which is, like, right on top. So. <laughs> but anyway, what can you do? What can I you know, do? Dale Griffith, the famous Dale Griffith. From... Yeah, I, th- I think it was him. I, d- I don't know, but... Uh, yes. Yeah, I think it probably was him, or John Walters or someone was there Cause you're... on the day. Because but... I'm always, I'm not always confused, I'm a bit confused, because your first release was a kind of more of a compilation than your first debut album wasn't it yeah yeah it annoys me because it's listed as a compilation but Barbara's in the space from the well it's our first album in my opinion so it's uh, it's just that they'd been out before four of them had been out before and the rest weren't uh, on an EP but you know the EP didn't sell millions or anything yes um, so then it, I think Play Hard Records Dave Oslin's records uh, he set up that record label and he put it out yeah, he put it out, and uh, yeah, it did really well. People really liked that one, so so people talk about it. So. Well, absolutely, and that that obviously, you know, because the one thing that kind of knocks a lot of bands out that I found was that um, not everyone, but you know, the, the music world does kind of progress, and there's like those scenes, aren't there? Like you know, you had the '60s, there was a glorious period, and then it goes a bit crap. Then the glam period, and then it goes. Yeah, bit, yeah. And then you know, in you know, indie pop sort of comes to a bit of a finish. You know, that jingly jangly stuff, and then yeah. ecstasy hits, doesn't it? And it's like, wow, everyone wants to dance scene. Then you get those bands who okay. aren't really part of the scene of the Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, Soup Dragons, and the other band who I can't remember now. Primal Screams. Oh, um, Stone Roses. And you obviously were kind of like underneath the radar, so to speak, weren't you? Going going from the late yeah, the, yeah. The, the late eighties and early early nineties. Did you? I mean, by then, because most bands they have a five year narrative, don't they? And you'd been together sort of for five years by the sort of early nineties. And then when you were yeah. doing your that last album, which was coming out on Cherry Red, you know, Blowsy Weirdos. Did that, that, was it, that was your third album. Did it feel like things were beginning to get a bit strained with the band at that stage? Well, I, it always strained in the band, yeah, was definitely the thing. And um, we'd, we were playing live quite a bit. Well, we were playing live, we were getting pretty good, if you don't mind me saying. You know, on occasion, we were crap, but when we were good, I thought we were good. And one night, this guy comes storming in the dressing room, well, I've got, I've got to sign you, come in America with us. And, oh, yeah, 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 mate. <laughs> and he was genuine and said, right, I'm putting on this thing in America in about six, seven months. A tour with, uh, I can't remember some of the bands now. And uh, so, well, that, that'll, you know, that'll be great, that. And so everyone was up for that. And then that went tits up. And we all fell out, and we all fell out with the record company, and we all fell out with publishers, everything. <laughs> so it was a good time to have a break, should we say? Yes. So that's how it, it disintegrated, really, at that point. Yeah. So did you get a chance to promote your, you know, Blowsy Weirdos album? I think we only eventually only did a few gigs for it, but we were gonna just the America thing was gonna be. Uh, playing over there, no one would have ever, ever heard it, so we could play anything we want. We could play all that album, yes, or you know, whatever. And we thought, yeah, yeah, good, you never know, you never know what might happen. And uh, but you know, it won't to be, no. And did and when you walked away from, from the band at that stage, and obviously, yeah, the members all went their separate ways, did you was the kind of was the music world for you sort of put in? Put to one side until you kind of came back. Well, well yeah, I was doing it literally twenty four seven for about eight years, I think, and uh, I just literally had enough. So just uh, 
started going out then, if you know what I mean, because although you're in a band, we weren't living a rock and roll lifestyle, but all my mates were like going out clubbing every weekend. I wasn't like gigging or, or whatever. So I started going out clubbing after the band thing, so I started to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's what happened. So then, you know, obviously that, that kind of scene had gone into the grunge world with that Seattle world that, yeah. that had sort of come up and I remember John Peel playing that Sub Pop 100 album and then a few years later you know we've had enough of grunge and Britpop came along did you feel when you were watching the Britpop bands like oh, we could have been doing this as well or did you not no no because I, I never thought was so determined not to sound like anybody that we get caught in a category if you know what I mean yes uh, which is bad in some ways. If you're in a category, you get a lot more of an audience. So we've always been a bit um, bit private in that respect <laughs> and not on in a scene, yes. if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, uh, it, was, <laughs> it is intentional, was intentional, but... Yeah. Not not to become part of anything, yeah. And did the, did the members, did you all... You know, by then, hadn't seen each other for decades. Did you? I mean, did you sort of catch up with each other, or did the band totally split by then? Pretty, pretty much. Uh, I got back in touch with the drummer for when we started up again, um, Stuart, and uh, what he's been, he did. What he's done, been doing the drums basically since then. Yes. So. It, that was all cool with him, but other than that, no, everyone's no idea what they're doing. <laughs> no, absolutely. Not not in a horrid way. I just, you know, you just move on. You know, as a Joy Division, Joy Division song, "Walk Away in Silence," really wasn't it? That's the one. That's that, the one. The That's the one that sums it all up. So then, why? What made you feel a certain kind of itch to say, "Oh, actually, I'm kind of keen to do the fourth album," kind of. 15 years later no 19 uh, 18 years later i was going out to a lot of clubs and listening to piano music believe it or not and me and my mate um went into the studio to try and do some piano dance music we'd done about three or four songs or whatever and i think that that was the start I says yeah it's all right but it's not great I, you know i want crunchy guitars and lots more attitude and I think it started from that really but it was, it was totally out of the blue to say oh let's go in the studio and do a piano dance music yes a few tracks and see what happens so um it was sometime after that that I decided to get the old guitar out again plug her in <laughs> did you feel I mean yeah. can you remember that Italian house sound that always had that thumping great grand piano like it I think it was black box and there was there, yeah 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 there was a, loved all that that rhythmic piano stuff loved it all yeah. yes and i just i can well it was hard not to love it really let's face it us indie kids were like oh this is great i might be able to shuffle yeah. to this and look quite well it would never look cool but you know we try to do best but i remember yeah. the you know there was there was an italian house sound that was out for about 12 months that you know i i had a you know absolutely yeah, I loved it. Loved it all, really. So then when did you sort of think, right, okay, a bit like the the return of the Magnificent Seven, but with different members. When did you start looking for a new band and get Carissa? Carissa? Probably after, after that third album, their fourth album, the Orphan Files thing, did, because um, that really wasn't a proper, proper album. It was like after that, so I've got to do a proper violinist thing again to get a violin in. So met Clarissa and um, got Stuart involved. I was going to be doing, no, no intention of doing anything live, so uh, I'll do the guitar in and um, we'll work out some sort of bass player. And, it, you know, it was, that's how it happened. Yes. And did it feel, did you have the same feeling you had with that, Mark, too, as you did? When you first started, or, or what, did, did you have a bit of a different approach to the whole way it was going to be? Uh, well, I realised that everyone was looking at me all the time in the band, right, to like, be in charge, and, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me, <laughs> what do we do next? So 
Uh, it just felt different from the point of view that if anything's going to happen, I've got to say, no, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, and if it's shit, then you come up with it, with a better idea, you know? Yes. But it, need, it needed someone to push it, really. And unfortunately, that, that that was me, whereas I never felt that before. I just thought it was like a band band, if you know what I mean. Yes. So. It's interesting because yeah. um, when I did, you know, the interview with Fast Eddie, I could see that the problem with the first lineup of the band, and I've come across this with a few bands, is that like the mo- the band were like divided f- for three people. No one, so everybody, it was their band, but the the tension within them, you yeah. know, was horrendous, and the fights and the drinking and the drugs, and yeah. and so when it kind of fell apart, it fell apart, and then it was very much like Lemmy was Motorhead, and there was another art, there was another band who I interviewed who totally different Blythe Power with a guy called Joseph Porter and he tried because yeah, well, I've, I've heard I've heard of him but I've not heard the stuff yeah well I think because of his kind of aspect of a certain socialist anarchist idea he always wanted the band to be quite democratic but then after 25 years thought actually I'm I'm through with this I'm I I am Blythe Power this is my band and from now on I'm gonna take kind of ownership so it, it sounds a little bit different to what you were saying in the sense that you were a bit reluctant, whereas he, he said it took him a long time to learn that because he would, he would try and put people, you know, people would start sort of arguing about putting them, you know, having writing credits and wanting to get some more cut of the money, yeah. even though they've just turned up and done one bass part and then buggered off again and said, you know, yeah, no, I, I should have... It can get like that. Yes. Well, I've been there as well, but um, it can get like that, but... Um, I think it is easier, you know, if you go to work, you know, he's the boss, you know, you complain to, don't you? So, if it, starting in the bands, or what we're doing now, everyone's looking at you, you've got to know what to do. So, yes. I think it makes it clearer rather than every people saying half a sentence and another half a sentence you don't add to the other sentence and then saying, well, do you know what I mean? And I go, no, no idea what you mean. <laughs> Rather than someone saying, let's do this. Right, I'll start this, you play along to this or whatever. Then you've got something to go off straight away, you know what I mean? Rather than all sat there cross-legged going, right, got any ideas? Yes. A lot better if someone comes in with, right, I've got this, these set of riffs and this kind of structure. What do you think? Play along, see how it goes, see how it develops. Yes. And obviously- A lot easier, I think, that. That way. Yeah, and so with your, when you came, you know, like the next stage after, you know, like the last two albums before the one that's coming out, did you, I mean, you've been on incredibly focused, creative kind of direction now. Has has something kind of changed in your own life to sort of be able to be that focused? Um, I just find it easier to to like. If I start messing about on guitar, I said, oh, I like that straight away. <laughs> Rather than, oh, it's not bad, and do about 10 ideas. I usually find the first or second idea yes. I play, I like. So then I think, oh, there's a song there. Let's write some words. It just seems a lot quicker now than before. It was quite, it could be quite drawn out, if you know what I mean. Yes. So now it's just um, it's a lot more... I don't focus just because I tend to play what I like straight away. Um, I know it's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know that should push myself a bit more. But well, it's interesting because then um, there's a band who was so different to what you've been into. Go West. They were very poppy in the '80s. But I remember the guy was saying the most important thing is just get the work done, get it out there, and then do the next thing. Don't don't spend ages faffing about. Oh yeah. Definitely not, you know, self. I want, like I say, I want two albums to do. So this album that has, no one's ever heard yet, you know, I'm past that already. So it's, um, I still like it, obviously. Um, but you move on, yeah, you've got to keep moving on, yeah. Because if you start trying to wallow, yes. uh, well, you just stagnate like a big fat hippo and <laughs> nobody's. Yes. Nobody's well. They're not very friendly hippos. Are no. <laughs> big fat wallowing hippo. No, it's just... So uh, 
But um, yeah, I'm more like a shark. Sure. Keep going, keep, keep going, going yes. keep going. Can't sit still. Well, it's funny because it reminds me of the fall and rise of Reginald Perrin because every time he thought of his uh, mother-in-law, he thought of a hippo, didn't he? But um, which yeah. is a delightful. So with this album coming out in September, when did you start, yep. r- say, writing it? And then when did you go into the studio? Well, actually, we had, because of COVID, what happened was we wrote it, uh, I'd say from June last year till June, about June, July, then recorded it in October, and then we couldn't do anything with it. October to November-ish, recorded it. but And then everything, we took a few weeks off before starting mixing, and then everything shut down. Um, no, everything kicked in in March, didn't it? Yes, it was March, so, April. I think, uh, yeah, I could, yeah, some people were busy and couldn't get their stuff together to start the mixing and everything. Basically, there's about a five, six-month gap between finishing recording and starting mixing it. Right. Because of everything that's gone on. So that was hugely frustrating because we couldn't get anywhere to do it because I don't have a home studio or anything. I still use recording studios, so they basically weren't open. So it would have been out a lot sooner. Basically, yes. If, um, and have if, you and uh, have you set, and have you settled on a bit kind of a formula of who you've got producing your records, who can get the sound you want, as well as the studio that you're comfortable in. Uh, tend to try and keep it fresh and use a different studio each time. But um, guy who was doing it last time, uh, doing this album, he was great. So I wouldn't mind using him again. But it is hard to find the right people they might be very good you know technically engineers um but it still won't come out how you want it but i think this time it came very close to how i imagined it so we might use that again that's a place called uh, tough gong tough gong yeah bob marley studio what was he do you have a label called a label or a recording studio called tough gong something like this is called tough gong as well so nice Uh, but it's not it's not in jamaica or anything it's in it's in warrington yeah, it's kind of glamorous, isn't it? I think there was a famous one in Rochdale, wasn't there? A famous studio that everyone used to love. Yeah, we, uh, Sweet Sixteen was there. Yeah, we recorded that. That was New Order Studio, I think. Yeah. Joy Division. And did you, I mean, because it was quite interesting recently, you know, that whole recording process, because I've been, you know, I love my rock and roll documentaries, and there was that one, Rockfields, where, you know, it was residential. Did you ever have a, a residential experience recording an album, you know, where you... Yeah, I had, it just went... With the Blousy Weirdos album, the third album, we spent two weeks in London, basically locked in a studio for two weeks, and you just, it's just too much. <laughs> you can't hear anything, you don't know what you're listening to. <laughs> and it sounded better before it was mixed, if you know what I mean. So it wasn't, it was real. I said, never doing that again, like a lock in, but. <laughs> um, it was just way too much and you just get on each other's nerves and you can't stand the songs because you hear them a million times it sends you insane so I know if it's quite relaxed come in when you want hire the studio for a year oh we'll bob in an hour at some point over the year <laughs> that would be great but bloody expensive yes well absolutely because I know I did that uh, an interview with the drummer um, John French, who'd worked with Captain Beefheart, and they, when they did Trout Mask Replica, they were all locked into a house. And I think, I think it got a bit mental. Actually, I think he was quite uh, traumatized. Oh, very easy to get mental. Yeah. Yes, and I think Captain was the Captain was a bit kind of extreme, and he was quite young, and I think was kind of he felt looking back on it, he was probably bullied and tortured quite emotionally so you know i think he had to write a book about it and you know that was great yeah yeah good story (laughs) so what would you i mean because playing live i mean you played a lot when you were you know in your you know first phase of life do you sort of miss that experience of sort of going out and doing the work um yeah i forgot the right people some people I, I, i don't mind playing live um it's the trouble with playing live is, um, if it doesn't it what you people hear out front is not necessarily what the band hear on stage, and um, if you can't get into it because 
the sound mix, you know, on the stage is awful. It's it's a pretty crap hour out of your life, and you can't get it across. And that that happens quite a lot because we're quite hard to get right live, if you know what I mean, because of the violin. Yes. And um, we never seem to have steady sound people that come with us, but we'll uh, we keep persevering. We haven't done much, but I'm not ruling ruling it out. I would love like a live album. That's the only thing um, that's lacking, in my opinion, is a really well-recorded live album of all the olders and goldies oh. and the newies and <laughs> you know all that. Little but, um, little banter. <laughs> yeah, little banter with people. Yeah, and all that. Nice. That. Yeah, it'd be great because I do like live albums. Yeah. Well, I remember growing up, there were things like Cheap Trick and there was um, Live at Buddha Cowan and uh, obviously Frampton Comes Live. I was very young. Frampton Comes Live. Obviously, no, no sleep till Hammersmith. Yes, well, yes, that's the classic, really, isn't it? And even David Bowie did a few live albums. I mean, did you, I mean, with the band, keeping the legacy going, obviously you might say, I don't care, but at the same time, it's quite nice to know that people are still re you know, discovering your music. And, and the best way to do it is to keep in, keep bringing new stuff out as well, rather than just kind of yeah, relying. Yeah, that, that's my philosophy. Yeah. Do you do you find that you're picking up kind of new followers or new kind of fans who are sort of scattered around the world? Who, who you know those? Yeah, yeah. You never got that really in the old days. You used to get um, old school fan letters from people. It was all UK, maybe a few from France, but uh, we're not massive on social media, but. It, yeah, it's from people all over the world. Yeah, um, saying hi, just just discovered you. And going, Where have you been? You know? <laughs> and uh, um, right, here's all the records you have to buy. Them, yes. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's obviously that's not social media, which you know theoretically gives you you know the world as opposed to what was going on about before about. Enemy and stuff. It's like very UK based and everything. Yes, this is true. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be surprised uh, the amount of people. I'm always surprised the amount of people who remember us. Um, yeah, always pleasantly, obviously. Absolutely. I mean, because the one thing that I've noticed with speaking to quite a lot of people is that they quite like art getting their stuff archived and sorted. Have you also? I know you're releasing more new stuff than worrying about what you did. 30 years ago but have you sort of thought yes actually we've we've got most of the stuff that I want archived sorted or is there more to to bring out well all I know is everything we've ever recorded is on Spotify right so it's all there and that, therefore it's free you know yes basically so it's all there archived there with the sleeves and everything <laughs> yeah uh, that's the only archive well, it's a digital archive but uh, personally, no, I, I don't really. Like I said, I try and move on quite, quite quickly. Yes, you know? absolutely. I mean, if just lastly, then, if you were to, if you could have said something to your eighteen-year-old self, you know, that was starting out, that you thought, actually, just a whisper in their ear, you know, some little bit of advice, even if that person might have ignored it. But you've, you've obviously experienced a lot of things, especially in the, in the world of music, which is so heightened emotionally. What would you, what would you tell somebody who was starting out? Uh, I'd say don't listen to yourself at 18. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'd say. Because you talk a big load of crap ever. Yes. That... Yeah, basically. Yeah. Don't listen. You, you keep evolving as a person, don't you? Yes. You are essentially the same nuts and bolts, but you keep evolving. And there's nothing to say in stone at 18. But if I started now in a band now, I'd say... I wouldn't know what to say because I wouldn't know. Say, oh, this is what you do. You start the band, you get really good. Yes, you try and get a gig, you try and get a purely session, you try and get, and you know, reviewing the music papers. But that's all gone. So I don't know what you do. No, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I know. And it seems to be so still. I think there's as many bands now as there was way back then. But I don't know how they're making a living. I know because there's a few. There was there was a couple of people I spoke to who were still got a, you know, like the guy from the Godfathers and also Fish who was yeah. in Marillion, and they had 
they they have to plan these kind of one month tours of Europe, you know, and definitely go to Germany because they said Germany's the the place to go. Because, but you really have to do like twenty nine gigs in thirty days just because of the the you know yeah. the way the finances run. So you'd really have to pack it in. It, yeah, um, it's hugely expensive. Yeah. Yes, I mean, did you sort of play? I mean, obviously you were going to get an American tour, but that didn't happen. Did you get to play Europe at all? No. No, really wanted to. Um, apparently, we were, we were quite big in Belgium and France and a bit in Germany. So, if there's any promoters out there yes. thinking about it, <laughs> have a listen to the album. Um, but obviously, they're not going to put you on unless they can fill somewhere. And sort of like the promote, you know, we're not going to fill stadiums or anything unless something remarkable happens. So, you're looking at like small venues, and it's very difficult to get a load of them. You know, back back to back to make it financially. But yeah, we would really like to play like you know Holland, Belgium, France, yes, Germany, Italy. Sort it out for us, mate. I oh, know you can come. Pull your socks out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's easy to it's easy to organise. There can't be that much to it. <laughs> anyway, look. Well, I'm pleased that it's going so well. And I have to say, you know, I was, I've just started listening to the new album, and like I said, there's some you know fantastic songs i love the intensity you know that kind of uh yes no yeah kind of good good vibe but i love sugar rush that was the one that i really sort of thought that's, that's good good it was hard work that was the hardest work on it but <laughs> i'm glad it's been appreciated yeah yes it took a lot of goals to get that one right i know yeah, yeah. and did um good. i mean because obviously that's just sorry lastly but you know the, the violin is such a thing how does the work between sarah who was an original person and carissa how does how do they differ in their kind of playing is it or is it quite interchangeable? Uh, I think uh, Clarice is more... Uh, we tend to work in art acoustically with Clarissa initially just to make the notes don't clash with the guitar and whatever, and then plug it in, and that changes a lot, so you have to like adapt how you play. But um, I, I, don't, I think she's a little more um, classical leaning. Right. Um, so I have to uh, beat that out of her <laughs> <laughs> verbally and um, try and get, get get away from you know what you'd expect in classical music because that's what you've been trained to do. You know, that's just, that's the thing you're going to do naturally. So so it's um, yeah. So that that's that's the difference. Yeah. It, it? Well, it's funny because in the in the in seventies you'd get those bands like Deep Purple playing with the. London Philharmonic Orchestra, so you could slip in a bit of, I don't know, the Four Seasons, couldn't you, for your next album? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, could, you could get away with murder then, couldn't you? <laughs> People called it art, it's brilliant, yeah. Call it art, you can get away with it. It's all about the drugs, it's all to do with the drugs. It was, yes. Just get the right drugs, you're sorted. It all sounds good then, apparently. Look, uh, this is brilliant. Okay, well, thank you ever so much for this. And um, yes, I'll tell you when I put it out, but this has been amazing. So, yeah, I hope uh, I hope that wasn't too painful for you. No, no, it wasn't as gruesome as I expected. <laughs> so thank you very much for being generous. I, know, I think yeah. someone said, oh, you've had a horrible experience, you know, and you heard that. Oh, sorry. I've had a few, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, tend not, I tend not to do... Interviews, I do. I don't get asked as much now because I tend not to do them. But I do a few Q and A's, you know, by email and stuff. But other than that, I tend to try and avoid them. But like, um, Jets kept saying, "Come on, come on!" He's been asking for ages. This guy, you've got, you've got to do it. So I said, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, look, it's brilliant. Well, look, fingers crossed for next month for the album coming out, and hopefully the next, brilliant. the next, um, thanks very yeah, much. and the next year. Brilliant. Okay, well, take care of yourself and. Uh, and you, you take care, mate. I'll speak to you. See you later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with um, Charles or Charlie Kia from the band The King of the Slums, though I think it's just King of the Slums. Anyway, they played Norwich quite a few times. In fact, the Norwich Arts Centre, the Wild Club. If you were there, it was an epic gig. Anyway... 
As I said, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. It's all good. And also all these shows have been archived and you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just go for it. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.